I'm going to go ahead and make your way back to your seats. We'll continue in our worship this morning. Um, and we're going to do it specifically by looking at a portion of Scripture in the book of 2 Samuel, and in particular chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can jump up and grab one on one of the tray tables that are behind each section of chairs. It won't distract me. Jump up, grab it, use it this morning. Uh, if you don't actually have a Bible, let that be our gift to you this morning. Keep it. Come back with us as we walk through it this year, because uh, this year we are doing our best to overview the, the single story that really does uh, encompass the entire scriptures, the story of, of God's redemptive grace, the, the drama of God's redemption. And so uh, we've made our way from the beginning, and we find ourselves in what some people think is the most crucial uh, section or chapter of scripture in the entire Old Testament. In fact, a, a scholar named Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar and professor at a seminary down in Georgia, this is what he said about 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said, this chapter is the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel corpus. So it, it, he, what he means is in that the Hebrew scriptures, First and Second Samuel are one book. So we're the ones that break it up, but it's one book telling one particular story. And, and so he's saying in this entire corpus, both books, this chapter is the theological center. But he says, in fact, the most crucial theological statement in the entire Old Testament is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let's read it. Let's don't waste any time. Let's just read it and try together to understand what makes this one chapter so crucial, so central to our understanding of what God is doing in his redemptive grace and how this plays a role in the history of, of God's redemption. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll start in verse 1, and I'm just going to read through probably the first 16, 18 verses, make a couple comments along the way, and then we're going to go back and forth from here to some other places in Scripture and try to understand what's happening. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1 <clears throat> says this, Now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And let me just kind of catch us up here for a little bit, because for some of you, you're going to be shaking your head, like, what in the world and how did we get here? David is king now. Last week, Saul was king. And we looked at Saul's tendency and all of our tendencies towards self-deception and how that played itself out in his life. And we are going to bypass some of the thrilling stories about David and Saul and, and David's rise from the pasture, in a sense, to the palace and how he got there. And, and suffice it to say that in your reading, you'll come to that, but he's there. David is king. Uh, he's now the Lord's anointed. Israel's king, and he's established his reign. And in those stories, what you'll see is that David has already demonstrated his, his capacity as a skilled military leader and commander. David has conquered the enemies of Israel, and he's expanded the borders of Israel now wider than they've ever been expanded before. Through David, God has made Israel now a national power, an international power in a sense. And David's also displayed some of his savvy, his relational savvy and his political savvy and strategy as he took Israel, which was in a very much of a sense a divided people spread out amongst the tribes around the land, and he's made them a united people under his leadership and under his kingship in the monarchy. And to unite the people and kind of give that sense of unity, David gave them a new capital city. And Jerusalem becomes the capital city for God's people. So he's a smart guy. He's a, he's a capable guy, and he's proven himself to be a good leader, a, a good king with a heart that's devoted to the Lord. So here he is now with a relative sense of peace in the nation, having accomplished the victories he's accomplished and now establishing a new center for the people. And he's built himself a home, and he's got a palace, and he's looking around, and things are going well, but it dawns on him, listen, I'm living large in this palace, but the presence of God, the glory of God, the Ark of the Covenant, it's still in a tent. There's just something not right about that with David's heart. It's an incredible picture into the, the sensitivity and devotion of David's heart to the Lord. And, and David looks around and says, ah, we need to build God a house. And he deserves more than this tent. And Nathan the prophet says, you know what? That sounds good. Seems reasonable. And go and do what your heart desires to do. Now look down in, in verse 4. Let's see where the story goes. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So God's now speaking to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. 
But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all of your enemies from before you. God said, thanks, but, but no thanks, David. I appreciate the gesture at this point, but you're not going to build me a house. And even in the past, there was no impressive building for me to dwell in. My glory didn't dwell in houses of cedar and all the places that we went. But you know what? It didn't stop me from rescuing you. And the fact that my glory didn't dwell in this great palace for the people to look at and marvel at didn't stop me from cutting off your enemies before you. It didn't hold me back from choosing you and anointing you and, and making you my king. I, I appreciate the gesture, David, but I'm not hampered by the fact that I don't have a palace like yours. You're not going to build me a house. Instead, you know what, David? I, I'm going to do something for you. That grand turn of events is about to happen here. And David, out of devotion and sensitivity to the Lord, he recognizes the, the inequity here, and he, he wants to build a permanent place for the glory of God to dwell in the midst of his people, which sounds very much like what we've been seeing happen throughout the Old Testament. But God says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. We'll see here in a second. And it's not going to be a house of cedar that looks like the one you live in. It's going to be a people. I'm going to build for you a people. I'm going to build for you a dynasty, in a sense. Look at what he says here. God says, I'm going to make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more. From the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel, I have now given you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You're not going to build me a house of cedar, David. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to make you a dynasty. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Verse 15, I love this. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all of these words and in accordance with all of this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the most crucial theological statement in the entire Old Testament. Let's pray together and then we'll try to see if we can't understand why. Why this statement is so important. Let's pray. Father, we don't have uh, much time together this morning, and we thank you this morning for your scriptures and for your word. We thank you that your word is the one thing capable, as it works through your spirit, to make us wise into our salvation through faith in, in your son Jesus, our Lord, our King. We ask this morning, Father, that your spirit would illuminate your word, make it real to our hearts this morning. We ask this for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name. Amen. So we get started. Let me ask you a few questions. How well do you keep your promises? How well would the people around you say you keep your promises? Are you a man or woman of your word? Husbands and wives in here? You took vows, right? Richer or poor? Sickness and health? Does that include balding heads and sagging skin? Do your vows change on the circumstance? How faithful are you to your word and to your promises? How faithful do you think God is? Don't give me the right answer. How faithful do you feel like God is to his word and to his promises? As we've already seen so far, just in what we've done with the Old Testament, God has made some pretty bold commitments 
some pretty bold promises to his people. Is, is he one that keeps his word? Is he one that keeps his covenants? One of the reasons why 2 Samuel chapter 7 is such a crucial chapter, such uh, that they can say that it's the epicenter in the Old Testament theology of God's faithfulness to his people, is that in this commitment, in this covenant that God makes here with David, in these promises, God ties together the promises that he's made in the past, and he, he applies promises to the present life of his people Israel, but those promises point them forward to a, a future fulfillment, a, a fulfillment that even you and I live in and taste that we have yet to realize the fullness of. This is the place where all that God has said and done in the past is tied together with what he's doing for his people right there in the present, but it points forward to how God is ultimately going to fulfill the promises that he's made. Remember back in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, after sin had entered into the picture and, and shattered the relationship between Adam and Eve and between them and God, and God looked at him in the midst of that sin, in the midst of that defiance, and he said, you know what, uh, here's what I'm going to do. From you and from your seed is going to come an offspring, and, and this one that's going to come from you, in time, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to crush the head of my enemies and, and your enemies. This is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen, but he didn't tell them exactly how it was going to work. And in a sense, throughout the entire Old Testament, leading up to where we are right now, God has continued to renew that promise with his people through a series of covenants that build upon each other, that remind them of what he has said and reveal to them a little bit more about who he is, how he relates to them, but how he's going to fulfill this promise. You know, we come to Noah, and, and after, not long after Adam, and, and in response to the sin of the people, God floods the entire earth, but he preserves the people, and he promises Noah, look, I'm going to keep a people. I promise that I'm going to one day through the offspring of the woman crush the head of the serpent. Look, I promise through you now I'm going to keep a people. And I'm going to preserve them to the end and I'm never going to do and what I just did and destroy the earth by the flood again. When I was a seal of that promise, he gave Noah the rainbow. Remember that? Now, I've always wondered what it must have been like for Noah the first couple times it stormed. You know, how fast did his heart sink when the rain started to fall? Oh, but how sweet must his smile have been when he saw the rainbow? He said he wasn't going to do it again, and, and there's his word. You know, God moved on in the life of his people, and we see again in, in Genesis chapter 12, him coming to a man named Abram. Remember Abram? Remember we're going through this? And God looks at Abram, and he makes a, a promise to Abram, and in a sense, building upon the promises he's already made, he, he makes a covenant with Abram. He says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your family great. Through you, there are going to come many offspring, many descendants. And, and through those people, through my people, the nations on earth will be blessed. I'm going to bless you with this, a great name and a great people. But through them, the entire earth is going to be blessed. And we see those promises beginning to play themselves out in their descendants. And, and Isaac and, and Jacob and, and Joseph. And as the story goes on, and we come to Moses. And remember the story with Moses? God's people find themselves in slavery in Egypt, 400 years of, of brutal slavery. They cry out to the Lord, and, and God calls Moses to go and, and be his man to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. He leads them out of slavery in Egypt across the Red Sea to the foot of Mount Sinai where God reveals himself to his people, speaks to his people directly. The mountains shake, the thunderous comes. God reveals who he is. He reveals a little bit more about his character, a little bit more about his nature. He reveals a little bit more about what he's doing and what he's up to. And, and there at Mount Sinai, God enters into another covenant with his people. Not a brand new one that gets rid of the old one, but builds upon what he's done. And he said, you know what, I, I'm going to make you my people and I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. I'm giving myself over to you. And in, in this, in my holiness and righteousness, I want to dwell in the midst of you, in the midst of your sin and iniquity. And to do that, look, here are my statutes and my laws. Here, here's how we're to live together. Here's how I'm going to be with you and you're going to be with me. And he, he cuts a covenant with them and promises to be with them and gives them his law. And we see this relationship begin to play out and play out a little bit more. Each of these covenants, each of these promises, building on what God has already said, revealing a little bit more of who he is and how he deals with his people, but how ultimately he's going to fulfill that promise that one day he's going to crush the head of that serpent through the offspring of the woman. And, and that gets us, in a sense, to where we are in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God's going to enter into another covenant. And this time he's going to enter into a covenant with David. And this covenant is going to draw back from those promises, going to draw on those promises that God has made in the past. And listen to what happens. Just listen to the parallels here. And God does this for confidence and for encouragement to his people. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, look at verse 9. God says, I, I've been with you, talking about David. Wherever you went, I've cut off all of your enemies before you. I, I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones on the earth. Have you ever heard God tell anybody else he was going to make him a great name? Is that familiar? Abram, 
right? Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12. That was the very beginning of God's covenant promises with Abraham. And now David, God is cutting this covenant with David. And he's pulling back the promises that he's made from the past and continue to be faithful to. Look at verse 10. God says, I'm going to appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and, and be disturbed no more. Has God ever promised his people a place where they're going to dwell? Has God ever made promises about a, a place, a land that he was going to give to his people? Again, with Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. God says, I'm going to give you this land. Then God goes on to outline the, the boundaries of that land, from the river Euphrates to this place and, and that place. Look at verse 12. God says that when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from you, or raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I'll establish his kingdom. Genesis chapter 17, God told Abraham, I'm going to raise up offspring from you. Same word, offspring from you, going to give you many descendants. And in chapter 17, God goes on to tell Abraham that I'm going to, from you, from this offspring, kings are going to come from you. 2 Samuel 7.14, look at this. This is a sweet one. God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, talking about David's descendant. This is not the first time that God has referred to a people or a person as his son. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, when God sends Moses to talk to Pharaoh, to demand from Pharaoh to let God's people go that they could worship him. You know what Moses told Pharaoh? Or what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh? That's right. He said, go tell Pharaoh, Israel, those people, Israel, they're my son. There's parallels all over this passage to all the different covenants and promises that God has made, tying up what he has said in the past, how he has been faithful, how he has given many descendants, how he has expanded the land, how he has brought them to this place, how he has continued to guide them and, and care for them woven all in through this covenant, but it, it's not just great because it ties together the faithfulness of God in the past, but God now expands and progressively expands these promises to impact the present life for God's people right, right there, right where they are. And there's three big promises that God gives David and, and that impact the, the really present reality for David and God's people right here. And then look at verse 12. God says that when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'm, I'm gonna raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's that next word? Forever. Verse 16, God says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, when your throne shall be established forever. God is promising here, covenanting with David, a permanence, an eternal offspring, an eternal son, that will reign on the throne of God's kingdom. In fact, we're not going to read the verses together, but when David responds to God after this covenant and he prays, listen to what David says. Just listen to the importance of the permanence that God has promised him. Just listen to how that plays out in David's heart and his gratitude. If down in verse 24, <clears throat> David's praying. He says, you have established for yourself a people, Israel, to be your people forever. Verse 25, and now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word you've spoken. Verse 26, your name will be magnified forever. Verse 29, now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servants that it may continue forever, 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 forever. God has promised an eternality and a, a permanence to this kingship, to this offspring, to this kingdom that he's talking with David about here. And here's the thing, for you and I, this has huge ramifications because if God is a God who keeps his word, if God is a God who's faithful to his word, then what God promised here in 2 Samuel 7 is in place today. Because God said it's going to be forever. It's going to carry on forever. There's going to be no end, which means you and I right now in the 21st century are swept up into the same covenant flow that God has made with his people. This deals with you and I. David wanted to build God a permanent place to live in the land. and Instead, God says, look, I'm going to build you a permanent name. I'm, I'm going to build a permanent people. There's going to be an eternal son that's going to reign on the throne. It's going to come from you. Second thing God promises that impacts their present, that's tied back to the promises he made in the past, it was a unique relationship. 
There's something unique that God is doing here with David and with the kings, with his offspring that will come from him. You see it in verse 14. God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, immediately, God's referring in this promise to David's son, Solomon. David's son, who we'll look at in the next couple of weeks, who fulfills David's desire to build the temple. God will allow him to build the temple in the house of God, and he will be a son to God. God will relate to him as father. I mean, just listen to this. First Chronicles 22, I just want you to see it. and It's going to get played out in the next couple of weeks. This is what David said. He said, my son, he's talking to Solomon. He says, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, which is what we're looking at in this chapter. You've shed much blood, and you've waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who will be a man of rest. I will give him rest from his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in all of his days. And you get verse 10. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. There is a unique and special relationship that God is now establishing in this covenant with David that will carry on with David's offspring, just as God said, forever. This was God's design for the kingdom as it worked itself out in David and in his offspring. More profound than just the fact that God was going to relate to David and Solomon and the kings to come from him as as a father does to a son, God is, is saying that this son, this son is to be a reflection of the father. This is what the point of him being king was supposed to be. God's design for Israel's kings all along was that their earthly rule and their earthly reign over God's people was to reflect God's heavenly rule and heavenly reign over his people. And when God met them at Sinai back in Exodus and he gave them his law, he gave them his regulations and statutes, in effect, God was saying, I'm committing myself to you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Here's how we're going to live together. And I'm ruling and I am reigning. In effect, I am your king. And we know from the story that Israel ultimately rejected God's leadership, rejected God as their king when they got into the land. But that didn't shock God. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God said, here's the deal. I know that when you get to the land, you're going to want to have a king like the rest of the nations. I know it's going to happen. So here's what I want you to do. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God outlines the type of king that he wants for his people. God says he's not supposed to acquire much silver and gold, not many horses, not multiple wives. This king is supposed to write his own copy of the law, his own copy of God's word, and it's supposed to be near to his heart and on his mind. So much so that when he rules and when he reigns and when he leads you, he's leading you as one who's so near and dear to my heart. When you're following him, you're actually following me as your king. He's just the earthly representation. God was and always has been the king of his people but he gives them this earthly king that he might be a reflection of God's heavenly kingship as his heart is near and dear to God's word and he leads God's people just as God would lead his people himself. The son is to reflect the father. That was the design from the beginning. And as the king's faithfulness to that covenant went, so went the nation's faithfulness. This is what we'll see play out in the lives of these kings. He was mediating these promises in a sense between God and his people. As the king was faithful, the people were faithful. As the king fell into unfaithfulness, you see in the lives of the people, they fall into unfaithfulness. But God was promising them this special relationship, this permanent reign, this permanent seed that will endure forever, this particular son that will reign on the throne forever, a relationship as a father to a son. And then thirdly, a real rest. A a real rest. You can see that there in verse 10. God says, I'm going to appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And we'll see in the rest of the story, especially as we go through Solomon, as David has now united the kingdom, he's given them a central place in Jerusalem. We'll see Solomon build the temple, and we'll see the Ark of the Covenant that David will have brought into Jerusalem finally take its place in the temple. And the glory and the presence of God will dwell in the temple in the midst of the people. The people will have peace, rest from all of their enemies, rest from war and the presence of God and encounter, where they can encounter the glory of God again in the place that God has promised. So here's what God's doing. Did you, did you catch this? If, if you can sum it all up in, in a statement, God is setting up a kingdom through this covenant that will endure forever, right? 
It's permanent. It will endure forever through a son who will be the mediator between God and his people in a place where they will enjoy God's rest and encounter his glory forever. This is what God's doing in this covenant. This is why it's so central to the story of God's redemption. God's giving himself to his people, pledging himself again to his people so that as, they, as he establishes this kingdom, and this kingdom and promises are mediated through an eternal son and the place of rest and glory in the presence of God, the nations on earth will be blessed. His plans have never changed. But there was only one problem with this whole thing. There's only one problem. David. Solomon. The kings that would continue on in the life of Israel. There's only one problem with this whole thing, and that's sin. Flip over in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It doesn't take long to see this begin to unravel. 2 Samuel chapter 11. You all know the story. Verse 2 says this, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, and he was walking on the roof of the king's house. Now, what should David have been doing? If you know the story. Where should David have been? He should have been in battle. Israel was in battle. David is the commander-in-chief. At that time, that actually meant he went out and fought. It doesn't mean that so much these days. But back then, they actually led the army in battle. And so here it is, Israel's out in battle against its enemies, and David's strolling up on his roof. Should have not been there. While he was up there, he saw from the roof a woman who was bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, Uriah was one of David's chief commanders. David knew exactly who Uriah was. He knew exactly who Bathsheba was. This is one of David's most trusted leaders in the military. So David, he sent messengers, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness, and she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Just a glance, right? Just a look. And within a matter of moments, that glance gave way to adultery. That adultery is going to give way to various attempts at covering up what had happened. But here's the thing. You can't cover up your sin. You can't cover it up. You, you might be able to put some dust over it for a little while. You might be able to convince yourself and deceive yourself for a little while that you've gotten it all covered up, but you can't cover it up. And this glance that gave way to that adultery, which gave way to a pregnancy, ultimately winds up in murder. As David has Bathsheba's husband killed, put up on the front lines where he's certain to be killed, where he had no business being. You can't cover it up. And this is David. This is the Lord's anointed. I mean, this is the one that had just had this covenant that God had cut with him. These promises that had come to him, that what God would do in him and through him. This is the Lord's anointed, set up to display the glory of God as king. Set up to lead the people and guide the people and rule the people just as God himself would do it. This is David. God gives us such a grace, oh, the grace of God giving us such a picture of the craftiness and the subtlety of sin here, right? Just a look, just a, just a glance. It always starts that way, just a glance, one look, and not only David's life, but as we'll see, the lives of, of other people and generations were changed forever. And you read it and you immediately think, if you've ever been around the Bible at all, you immediately think of Mark chapter nine and Jesus' famous passage and admonition that gets butchered so many times. And Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Better for you to enter heaven with one eye than enter into an eternal hell with both eyes, right? Just ask yourself this. Just, again, read it like a human. Don't you think that if David had it over to do over again, knowing what he knew now about what he had done and the consequences that were going to come, if he could do it all over again, don't you think he would have gone blind in an instant? Do you think he would have second-guessed for a moment the decision to gouge him out? knowing what this was going to cause, knowing what was going to happen. But here's the thing. Sin is so subtle. It was just a look. 
It was just a glance. Oh, but it harms and destroys so deeply. Who of us, I mean, seriously, which one of us would say that we have the capacity to actually measure the effects of our sin? Which one of us feels like we have the capacity to measure the effects of even one of our sin? See, here's the thing. Sin never simply affects you. It's never just about you. Your sin never terminates in its effect on you. Your sin affects everyone around you. My sin never just affects me. My sin impacts my wife. My sin impacts my kids. My sin impacts you, the people that God has entrusted me, the responsibility to shepherd and to lead and to guide in his ways. Our sin never simply impacts us. It goes far beyond us. It goes far beyond you. You may think it doesn't, but it does. You may think you can compartmentalize it. You can keep it tied up in one little spot. You can keep it locked up over here and it'll never get out. It, you, you've mitigated all the damage and you've got it all right here. You just sweep it up, dust over it, and it'll eventually be covered up. But you can never compartmentalize it. You can never do it. David's sin, it cost Bathsheba a husband. Cost David and Bathsheba a child. Cost David a military commander. Ultimately, it cost David the stability of his family as we see his sin repeated and the effects of his sin played out in the lives of his own children. Sin harms so deeply. Its effects are so broad. It is so crafty and so deceiving, and it spirals out of control so quickly. It was just a look, just a look. The king, all power, all wisdom, the role of the king bestowed upon him, just a look, ended in murder. It happens so fast. Listen to me. Please don't find yourself deceived into thinking that in any way you are the exception to this. You are not going to be the one that's able to compartmentalize it. You're not going to be able to be the one that can control all the damage, mitigate all the circumstances. You're not going to be the one. You can't play around with this. Listen, you, you can't get to a place where you're comfortable nursing your sin and nursing the temptations that arise in your heart. It'll become like that plant in Little Shabahors. You nurse it for a little while and it's okay. You keep nursing it and it grows out of control and just demands more. Sin will take over your life and you think you've got it all under control and it's only impacting this one thing in this one moment in this one spot, but it's not. It's not. It's so subtle, but it's so crafty. It devastates so deeply and it spirals out of control so quickly. Just in David, just in this story and in how his story plays out, we see a glimpse of the effects of sin on other people. But here's the thing, the real tragedy, the real tragedy of our sin is our defiance to God himself. You know, when, when Nathan finally confronts David about his sin, and his sin is exposed. And David, in confession and prayer towards God, what does he say to God? Do you remember? And David, in confessing and responding to God in just broken-hearted prayer, he says, against you only have I sinned. Really? You didn't sin against Bathsheba? You didn't sin against Uriah? In that moment, David was confessing and and responding to and giving word to the reality that those sins, as real as they are, as brutal as they are, ultimately pale in comparison to the defiance that our sin is in the face of a holy, infinitely righteous God. And that's the primary offense. And so here's the thing, if you think that you can hide your sin and compartmentalize it over here and no one else will know, not even God, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. It will always find you out. And here's the thing. I know you've got things rattling around in your brain. I know you do. I know it's uncomfortable for you sometimes. At this, Forget sometimes. Some of you are uncomfortable right now. But here's the thing. 
God hates whatever it is that's rattling around in your brain. God hates sin. And you need to know it's good that God hates it. God hates what hurts you and destroys you. He is no friend of this. God, more than anyone, understands the severity of this. It's so severe that one sin, one sin, friends, is justice enough in the face of a holy God and a righteous God to condemn you and I for an eternity apart from his presence. Just one. And he knows it. And he hates it. And you need to see his hatred for that sin in your life. And you need to see his grace and even bringing you to a place like this to be exposed, to be confronted with it, for his spirit to be at work in, in it. And you need to see it even as an evidence of God's grace and love towards you and not turn from it, not run from it, because it will lead to destruction. You might think you've got it under control, but it will spiral out of control. You might think that it's really not hurting anyone but you, bothering you in the moments of your mind when you're all alone and you realize what you've done, but it's affecting far more than just you. This is the devastating reality of sin, the craftiness and the destruction of sin. And we see its destruction play out, not only in David's life, but in the lives of Solomon and the kings to follow, which makes all the more glorious, I think, all the more gracious, I think, what God said in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. God said, listen, there's going to be this offspring I'm going to give you, and he's going to reign on the throne, right? Verse 14, when he commits iniquity, not if, not on the chance that, when he commits iniquity, I'm going to discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But look at this. I'm not going to remove my steadfast love from him. And this is what we see play out. Israel gets taken captive. Gets taken into exile twice by surrounding nations. God uses the surrounding nations to discipline his sons at the rods of discipline. We see him going to exile. We see the temple destroyed. But God had made promises, hadn't he? Now listen, I want you to do something. Imagine yourself now as an Israelite. Imagine yourself now living in exile, a stranger in a foreign land, at one time in the in the land that God had promised, now the temple's been conquered, the temple's been destroyed. You're in a foreign place, as a slave, seeming to be no hope, no hope. What do you hold on to? I mean, what is there for you to hold on to? Oh, you've got the promises of God. And this is how in the Davidic covenant, it takes the past and, and ties it together and it impacts the present, but it doesn't just stop there. It points forward. It's taking them forward. It's grounding them in a hope that is yet to even come while they're experiencing the devastation of what they're going through right there in the present. God said, I'm going to establish this kingdom forever and a seed is going to endure forever and the son will reign on the throne forever. And so during this time of what looks like hopelessness in the lives of God's people as they're spread out in exile all over the place, suffering now and, and not seeing any promise fulfilled and seeing no king on a throne, God sends men like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and his prophets to come and, and, and communicate to God's people their sin, to expose their sin, to bring them to a place of repentance, but to again remind them of who God is and what he has said and to point them forward. You get Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23. We're, we're going to deal with the prophets in coming weeks, but Jeremiah 23, he says this. He says, behold, listen. That's what behold means. He says, listen. In the midst of what you're going through, stop and listen. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David. For the sake of David, the one that I promised, the one that I made a commitment to, for the sake of David, I'm going to raise up a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Isn't that what God promised? And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Over and over and over again during the most hopeless periods in the life of God's people, while they're out in exile, God sends these prophets in the midst of these defective kings that don't look anything like what God had said would sit on the throne. God reminds him, there is one coming. There is a king, I promise. And he's a seed of David. He's gonna be the son of God and he's gonna usher in the kingdom, just as I said. 
just as I had said. And now the stage is set right for the fulfillment of the promise. And now the stage is set in the life of Israel for the divine king, the one that this whole thing was pointing towards, the one this whole thing was reflecting. Luke chapter 1. I told you you're going to flip around a lot. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. You usually don't read these things outside of December, but they're great. Angel looks at Mary and he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of who? His father David. What, what did he say back there in 2 Samuel 7? Who, who's going to sit? Who, whose throne? Whose kingdom? Mary. I promise. Years, hundreds of years now, silence from God. Angel showed up to Mary. Said, that promise I, I told you, I told the people, way back there to David, that kingdom, that king, that son to me, you're going to give birth to him. That's who's in your womb. Chapter 2, another Christmas passage, but oh, it's so great. Chapter 2, verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with fear, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. A Savior who is Christ. Christ, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah, which means the anointed one. The king, the anointed one. For, for unto you, this day, in the city of David, is born the king. It's born the king. He came from the seed of David, right? He came as the son of God. Jesus will be the perfect representation of the Father as the Son. He will be the King that will be the perfect representation of the Father as the Son, who will rule and reign and redeem His people, just as God had always promised. What the kingdom was always intended to show is now going to happen through Jesus, a perfect representation of the Father, an earthly king who's a perfect representation of the heavenly king. And why does He come? Why does He come to do it? What's the purpose behind it? What was the promise in the very beginning? One day, through your offspring, one will come who will crush the head of the serpent and who will redeem my people. He came to save his people. Acts chapter 2, flip forward. You got to see this. How it all, this is why this is chapter in 2 Samuel, of all places, is so important. Not only for the past, but for the present, but now for our future too. Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descends, and, and Peter steps up to preach to a crowd of, of Jewish people who have gathered for the festivals. Who do you think he talks about? David. Talks about David. He starts preaching and he talks about what David had said and what God had said to David. Look in verses 25, 26, 27, and 28. He's talking about David and the promises that God had made to David. And you get to verse 29. And Peter says this. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. David's dead. What God had promised back then to David must be pointing to somebody other than David. It must be pointing to somebody other than Solomon. Solomon's dead. David's dead. Peter goes on, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, a covenant, that he would set one of his descendants on a throne, 2 Samuel 7, David foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one, the anointed one, the king. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, Peter said, God raised up, and we are all witnesses of this. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, this Jesus, the Christ, this Messiah, the anointed one of God, this King, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. I mean, feel that. I mean, just imagine that. Peter standing up looking at a crowd of, of Israelites, of, of Jewish believers who knew about this promise back in 2 Samuel 7, that God was going to bring an anointed one, 
a Messiah, a king who would reign on the throne forever, who would bring this eternal peace. Peter says, look, he's here. He came. You killed him. This Messiah, this king, he was here. And you put him on a cross. You nailed him to it and you killed him. They go, what do we, what do, we do? What do we do, Peter? How does Peter respond? He says, repent. I wish I knew his tone. I wish I could reflect Peter's tone. I, I try to imagine it sometimes, but just repent. And turn from your sin. And trust in this Messiah, this anointed one, the Christ, the King. Repent. Same thing he says to every single person sitting in here. He never removed his steadfast love, just like he said. Discipline, yes, he never removed his love. And here's the fulfillment of the promise. The king has come. The king is here. What do we do? We turn from ourselves. We turn from ourselves. We recognize the reality of who he is. We recognize the fulfillment of God's promise. We recognize the grace to us that's come in this. And we repent of ever thinking that we and any had any right to lead ourselves. We repent and we turn from ourselves and we, we turn to him. If Jesus has never been sweet to you, if you've never seen Jesus as your king, as your Lord, I can only urge you this morning to turn from yourself. Whatever right you think you have to be your own king, you don't have it. It's an illusion. To turn to him as the only king who has come and done what you cannot do for yourself and has defeated, just as God promised, God's enemies and your enemies of Satan's sin and death, freeing you from the penalty of your sin. You can't free yourself. You can't forgive yourself. You can't cleanse yourself. You can't redeem yourself. You can't reconcile yourself to God. But this king came and has. And all I can do is urge you to trust him to urge you to turn from yourself and trust him. He he is your only hope. He is the one that God had promised that would come, that would save his people from their sins, free from the penalty of your sin. You gotta trust him. If you are a follower of Christ, if, if you can say with confidence that he is your king, let me urge you this morning. Don't make peace. Don't Try any negotiated settlements with your sin. And don't get comfortable with your sin. Not only has this king done what you could not do and freed you now by his life, death, and resurrection from the penalty of your sin, he has freed you from the power that sin had over you. You are no longer obligated to obey the sin that resides and tempts you in your own heart. You're under no obligation to sin anymore. You are under obligation to him as king. Don't make peace with your sin. Don't get comfortable with your sin. It has no right over you. In his body on that cross, he put an end to the power of sin. Paul said, putting it to open shame. You are no longer obligated to that sin in you. You're no longer obligated to that temptation. But it gets even better. It's going somewhere from there. It's all headed somewhere. And this covenant, this is why it's so great. Flip over to Revelation chapter 5. This king has freed you now from the penalty of your sin. He's freed you from the power of it. Oh, and here's the glory. One day, one day if he is king, and if he really is your king, you will spend eternity free from the presence of that sin. Look at this, Revelation chapter 5. This is one of John's heavenly visions. And there's a picture here that John's painting of of those who who are in heaven waiting for someone waiting for the one, there's only one, the one who can usher in the fullness of God's kingdom, who can finally and completely and fully deal with all of, all of the sin, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the injustice, all the damaging effects that sin has caused and ultimately with sin itself, and they're waiting. Who, who is this one? Revelation chapter five, verse one. John said, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with written on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Hey, can you wait to hear that? I mean, what's a strong angel? What's a loud voice for an angel? I mean, I don't know if you ever read the Bible like that, but loud voice. Worthy, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. David couldn't do it. Paul couldn't do it. Peter couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. Noah couldn't do it. No one on earth or under the earth was powerful enough or worthy enough to open up these scrolls. Now listen to what John said. He said, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here's our 2 Samuel 7. The root of David. That one that God promised back there. He's conquered. So that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And, And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a hard and golden bowl full of incense, which is the prayer of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth forever. There is a day to come when the kingdom of God will come in its fullness and we will not simply be free from the penalty of our sin as great as that is. We will not simply be free from the power of sin as wonderful as that is, but we will live forever as a kingdom of priests in the presence of God, free from the very presence of sin and its damaging effects. All of this God was pointing to in the promise that he made to David. And God is a God who makes promises. And God is a God who has always been and will always be one who keeps his promises. Let me pray for us this morning. God, I simply just ask that wherever we have wherever we've failed to see your rightful reign, wherever we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we had the right and the authority, to be our own kings. I pray that we would see that deception and Lord that you would by your spirit cause us to turn, to repent from that, to see you as our king, to see your glory in the face of your son Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the the Christ. And we would fall down on our face with loud tears of joy and gratitude. Lord, and I pray that we would find the light and following him for all of our days here on this earth. We ask this for his sake, for your son Jesus' sake. Amen.